Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Barney Jopson. Today we're looking at the dilemma facing European governments as they debate whether to take back hundreds of former ISIS fighters and their supporters who are European nationals and want to return home after the near total collapse of the ISIS caliphate. This issue is coming to a head because ISIS's last stronghold in northeast Syria is on the brink of falling. One of the military groups backed by the US there says it's already holding 800 to 1,000 foreign fighters in prison, including Britons, French and of Germans. Donald Trump has called for those fighters to be repatriated immediately, but the UK, France and Germany have many reasons to resist. To talk about all this with me on the line from Brussels is Michael Peel, the FT's European diplomatic correspondent, and from Beirut, Chloe Cornish, the FT's Middle East correspondent. So, Michael, let's start the discussion with you. There's been a lot of attention in the UK in recent days on one case, a lady named Shamima Begun, who left London as a 15-year-old schoolgirl to join ISIS in Syria and now wants to be allowed back to the UK with her newborn baby. Tell us a little bit about the significance of that case. Well, this has become very contentious because this week the uh, Home Secretary of the UK tried to strip Ms. Begum of her nationality as part of his policy of saying that he would make it as difficult as possible for her to come back. And then that has sparked a huge debate of whether this is fair or even legal. And it really highlights the very difficult situation that European countries are in with these fighters that are their citizens and are now either leaving Syria or or thinking about it and and coming home as the uh, anti-ISIS coalition closes in on the group's last stronghold. And this problem has several dimensions. One is the legal aspect that if these people come home, how are they dealt with? Can and should they be prosecuted? If they are prosecuted, there are questions of evidence that obviously the Syrian battlefield is not an easy place to get evidence from that would stand up in a Western court. And then there's the question of if these people are not jailed and come home and are free in their home countries, is there a danger that they might be involved in terrorism in their home countries, in which case they will need to be monitored and then there's all the resources and legal process and risks that go around that. And then on the other side, there's also the point that should European countries have the right just to wash their hands of their own citizens because they are seen as difficult cases to handle. And of course, if people like Ms. Begum don't come home, they remain the problem of Syria, which is obviously a country that is war-wracked and has suffered hugely at the hands of ISIS. And therefore, some people say, well, how is it fair that rich European countries whose citizens have been radicalized at home often should put it onto a country like Syria to bear responsibility for what to do with them. Now, we've talked about the UK case. What have we heard from French and German ministers about how they're thinking about this dilemma? Well, there's some resistance from everybody expressed more or less explicitly in public to the idea of people coming home. And the catalyst for this has been President Donald Trump over the weekend tweeted that that European countries should take back their nationals. Otherwise, he said they might have to be released. Those of them are in the custody of US-backed forces. 
So that's bringing the issue to a head. But no European country is keen to take these people back for the reasons I've described. But then again, over the years, many fighters have gone back and have been dealt with in different ways, sometimes by prosecution, other times not. Now, Chloe, let's turn to you. Tell us about the situation on the ground in northeast Syria where ISIS is, as I mentioned, in the process of losing control of its final bastion. What's happening there and what's happening to the people who live in that area? ISIS has been reduced to about 300 fighters from what we can see from photographs, basically, in a bunch of tents in a village called Barouz in northeast Syria. The UN has said that ISIS was holding hundreds of civilians in this area as human shields. But news agencies have just reported that truckloads of people are being brought out of this village. The US-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, who are fighting ISIS there, say they've been trying to secure the safe release of civilians for a while. And once civilians are out, Syrian Democratic Forces say they will attack the final few ISIS fighters. And they really battled very viciously so far. It's a kind of surrender or die situation. So the caliphate in its territorial integrity, what they call the caliphate, is nearly completely extinguished at this point. But ISIS will live on in other forms and does live on in other forms. There's a big camp full of displaced people who were living in this last ISIS stronghold, which is developed called Al-Hol Camp, which is close by. We think there's about 40,000 people, actually, who are living in that camp now, who in dregs and drabs have been coming out of the ISIS area since December. Quite a lot of children have been killed from hypothermia and other complications because the conditions there are reported to be really very dire and it's been very difficult for them in the journey from this last village where ISIS was holding to this camp. So, you know, Shumayma Begum and the other foreign nationals who've come out of this last part of the self-declared caliphate have found themselves in these really very dire conditions in this camp on the outskirts of this last battle. So it's understandable why people who can see a route out want to try and take it. Michael, coming back to you, let's talk a little bit about the politics of this in Europe where refugees emerging from Syria and Iraq have obviously been a massively political issue in recent years. You've just been to a big security conference in Munich where this issue of the foreign fighters was very much on the agenda there. What did you learn about how the politics of this are playing out in different parts of Europe? Well, the security conference in Munich last weekend revealed a lot of tensions between US and European powers over Syria. And part of these, as we talked about, is over what to do with the former ISIS fighters and camp followers who are European citizens. But another dimension is that the US is putting pressure on European countries to devote more resources to Syria. It's not clear whether they want European boots on the ground, but certainly they want the Europeans to become more involved, especially as President Trump has announced that the US will be withdrawing its forces, although it's still not clear to what degree and when that will happen. But it does, as you say, play into the wider crisis in Europe, which is a political crisis as much as anything else about borders and about what critics say is fortress Europe that's being created, where Europe is becoming more and more reluctant to let 
people in, even when, as in this case, you can argue that it has a strong responsibility to deal with people who are, after all, citizens of its own countries. And are we seeing any European leaders come under pressure from opposition politicians or indeed media in their countries to either take a very tough line on these foreign fighters or to be more lenient? Is that becoming part of the debate? Well, the Begum case in the UK clearly distills some traditional fault lines between a hardline approach which says, well, these people have made their bed and they need to lie in it, even if, as in the case of Miss Begum, she was only 15 years old when she left. And others who say, well, no, we need to observe all legal and moral responsibilities to deal with these people in whatever way. And then another strand is those who say, well, if these cases are dealt with in a deft way, the results could be that these are people who perhaps could become very powerful advocates to warn people who might otherwise be radicalized in European countries against following the same path. In other words, I made a huge mistake. Don't do the same thing. Absolutely. Now, Chloe, back to you. There are obviously many more ISIS fighters and family members who do not have European passports than do. So there are many more thousands of people whose fates are up in the air. You've recently spent time with some of them in northern Iraq. Tell me, what do you think the future holds for them? Yeah, you're right, Barney, because ISIS's self-declared caliphate stretched across Iraq and Syria, and it was thought to have about 7 million people living in it at one point. So there's a lot of people who either worked with ISIS or maybe became accidentally affiliated with them. I think it's very much worth pointing out there's a lot of grey areas in all this, and it's very, very difficult to know exactly what being an ISIS member really meant. Now, the Iraqi government is pursuing a sweeping crackdown on people suspected of being ISIS fighters or members Tens of thousands of men who came out of the territories that were being held by ISIS had been jailed in Iraqi prisons. And there's a lot of criticism of this process. Human rights groups have said that justice is not actually being done. A lot of these arrests are being done based on rumours rather than evidence or based even on tortured confessions. So there have been many executions of people convicted of ISIS membership to this point, but we'll never probably know whether or not these people were actually ISIS members. I mean, I think it would be difficult to make some of the evidence used in these trials admissible in like a European court, for instance. Many families of suspected or confirmed ISIS members are living in camps across Iraq, some of which are reportedly like open-air prisons because they're not really allowed to leave One of the issues that I noticed when I was visiting a couple of days ago was that people are lacking in documentation, so they can't actually leave the camp because there's so many checkpoints around that they'd be stopped and turned away anyway. So even if it's not an official detainment camp, you can end up being detained by not having the right paperwork. So these families are largely unable to go home, back to the places that they're from, either because they fear that they will be ostracized and persecuted by people who have gone back who weren't ISIS-affiliated or their houses have been destroyed or in the case of a a huge majority of people I was chatting to because the men in their family have been detained and now their family is being headed by women and they consider it not a safe and secure thing for them to do to actually try to go home. So it's a pretty desperate situation, really, for them. I mean, they're stuck in limbo. No one could give me a good answer about what's going to happen to these people. 
You can't prove necessarily that all of them are ISIS affiliates or ISIS members, but they aren't in a position where they can return back to their homes at the moment. So they're living on aid in camps and it's very tough conditions. And the scale of this detainment is quite striking. In the camp I visited in Nenoa, which is close to Mosul, about 20 people came up to tell me that members of their family had been detained and they hadn't heard anything from them for a year and a half or so, as long as that. So they've got no idea where they are whether they're dead or alive. And a lot of experts have warned that these kind of situation where you build up this resentment amongst this community that already spent a lot of time living under ISIS, you encourage them to see the government in a very, very negative light that is sowing the seeds for another confrontation between these kinds of communities and the Iraqi state in the future. Okay, thank you, Chloe. Well, it's clear that the war against ISIS may be coming to an end, but the consequences of that war are going to be with the people of Syria and Iraq and indeed with the rest of the world for a long time to come. And the case of the foreign fighters is just part of that. That's it from us for this week. My thanks to Michael Peel and Chloe Cornish. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.